good morning, friends. It's a privilege uh, to be with you today and to have this opportunity to open up God's word together. Before we do that, I'm just going to pray one more time for us briefly, and then we will dive in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know that it's so, it's so easy for us to fall prey to it, listening to your word and, and hearing it and intending it to put it to practice and then walking away and forgetting what we heard and, and not doing it. We, we, don't that, we don't want that to be the situation with us today. We genuinely want to hear your word. We want to have the reality and truth of it impressed down upon our hearts so that it produces a changed life. But only you can give this grace. Uh, only you can do this by your spirit. And so we call upon you now to do that. Please enable us to both hear and respond to your word and to the surprising forgiveness that we see displayed in it today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage today on pages 27 and 28. I want to encourage you to turn to the passage so that you can follow along in a few moments when I read it for us. And then I also want to encourage you to keep the passage and the Bible open in front of you throughout our time because we're going to be looking at it often in our time together. Uh, Genesis chapter 33 uh, brings to a close a decades-long drama involving Jacob and his twin brother Esau. Theirs is a relationship that has been fraught with tension and strife from the very beginning, literally from the very beginning. In a very real sense, that strife dates back to their birth when Esau came out of the womb with his brother Jacob grasping onto his heel. They were fighting, wrestling from birth. Then later in life, Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright by taking advantage of Esau's physical exhaustion. And then later cheated Esau again, stealing his blessing by lying to his father Isaac. This lifetime of strife and of Jacob cheating him, cheating Esau, led Esau to the point of plotting to murder his brother. Right, so if you maybe have siblings and you, you're like, oh, I get that. I, I, I've had lots of conflict with my, my sibling in life. I just want to impress upon you. Esau was plotting to murder his sibling. I'm not sure if you've made it to that point of conflict with your sibling or with someone else in your life. And that caused Jacob to flee for his life to Haran, where he spent the next 20 years of his life. But now, in our passage today, Jacob is returning to Canaan to the land that God had promised him, but to properly enter the land and make a home there, Jacob must first face Esau. Last week we saw that after hearing Jacob was returning to the land, Esau gathered 400 men to go meet his brother, striking terror and fear in Jacob because Jacob assumed that that meant Esau was coming to make war. And now, the moment has come. Jacob and Esau will finally meet. 
Is Esau still angry? Does he still want to murder Jacob? How will this reunion play out? And what does this passage have to teach us today? Well, let me read the passage for us now, and then we'll consider it more closely. We're looking at Genesis chapter 33. Go ahead and follow along with me as I read it for us. This is God's word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. You have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched, pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. If you're taking notes, The main lesson for us today is that it is by a surprising act of forgiveness that we will enter the true promised land. It is by a surprising act of forgiveness that we will enter the true promised land. With the rest of our time, I'm going to walk us through the passage, explaining it as I go. 
And then we'll consider how this passage prepares us for the good news of the gospel. And then finally, we're going to consider how this passage should change how we live on this side of the cross. So let's go ahead and look more closely at the passage. I want you to recall again with me the events of chapter 32. Jacob re-enters the land of Canaan. He sends messengers to Esau, but those messengers return to him with an ominous message. Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. In response, Jacob divides up his family and belongings. He sends gifts to Esau in the hopes of softening him towards Jacob. Then he wrestles with God all night long, resulting in a dislocated hip, but receiving God's blessing. Then the chapter ends with the sun rising on Jacob as he limped past Penuel, where he wrestled with God. And at some point, after he passed Penuel, Jacob finally catches a glimpse of Esau. Look at verse one with me. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. I mean, the tension here is immediately palpable. Uh, Even the way that its phrase communicates the significance of what is about to happen. Throughout the book of Genesis, When people lift up their eyes and look, some significant event takes place. For example, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham was sitting outside of his tent, and then behold, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, God and two angels were standing before him. In Genesis chapter 22, after Abraham is stopped by the angel from sacrificing his son Isaac, he looked up, and behold, A ram was caught in the thicket, that ram signifying, symbolizing God's provision for him. Right, the chapter has just begun, and we're already at the climax. And after seeing Esau and his men approaching, Jacob divides up his wives and their children into separate groups in verse 2. He arranges them basically in the shape of a column with himself at the front and each family group following in intervals behind him. And the reason that he's doing that is so that if, in the event that Esau attacks, the family group that is furthest from the attack might be able to escape, to get away, and to live. And we see in verse 3 then that as he approaches, he bows to Esau seven times. Literally, he's prostrating himself to the ground. It's not like a simple bow or a curtsy. In the Bible, when people bowed like this, they were prostrating themselves to the ground. And Jacob does that seven times. And I think his bowing to Esau conveys two different things. I think it conveys his own sense of unworthiness in the presence of Esau And at the same time, it acts as a plea for mercy. Like, like, please, I am bowing myself before you. Show mercy to your servant. He even calls himself Esau's servant in the passage. As in, you are the greater and I am the lesser. My life is in your hands. Have mercy on me. And surprisingly, it is mercy that he receives. Look at what Esau does in verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck 
and kissed him, and they wept. Right, we get the sentence in one quick glance, right? You read the whole sentence and you know everything that happened. But if you're there and you're watching this in real time, imagine you're one of Jacob's family group and you are worried about the fact that Esau is going to attack and you see the man that you are worried about attacking you and your family start running towards you, you're thinking, oh no, God help us. He is coming. He is coming to attack. He is so angry that he is running towards us. You would be struck with fear, right? So when he, we read that he ran and embraced him, you got to think that everyone in Jacob's entourage has to be celebrating at that moment, like, praise the Lord, we are going to live. Right? This is a surprising display of mercy, is it not? Jacob had cheated Esau twice. And it's not like he cheated him in a game of Monopoly and he like happened to win the board game and like, oh, that's really frustrating that you did that, right? He robbed Esau of the blessing that was his as the older son. And Esau was comforting himself with the thought of murdering Jacob. But now he runs to Jacob He embraces him. He falls on his neck. That is a display of leaning upon him in mercy, just grabbing him up in his arms. And then he kisses him and they weep. All of the pent-up emotions of the past 20 years of anger, of fear, of forgiveness, of wondering, all of this, what's going to happen, all of this pours out in this emotional and surprising act of forgiveness. Then after they've embraced and wept, Esau looks around. He sees all of the people with Jacob, right? Jacob fled from Esau with nothing. And now he looks at Jacob and Jacob's got tons of people surrounding him and all sorts of livestock. He's like, hey, what's up with this? And Jacob tells Esau about how God had blessed him with children. And you have this beautiful scene in verses six and seven of each of the distinct family groups drawing near to Esau, bowing to him in honor for the mercy that he's shown them, and that surprising act of forgiveness. And go ahead and look at me at verse 8. Esau says there, basically what he says is, brother, what what was up with all of the livestock you sent my way yesterday? This is what happened in chapter 32. Jacob had sent gifts of livestock to Esau, and Jacob says to him, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. It's because I was hoping to find favor and and mercy from you. That word favor in verse 8 is significant because that word entails forgiveness and rescue from judgment. He was seeking grace and forgiveness from Esau, the grace of undeserved forgiveness. In verse 9 then, Esau kindly refuses Jacob's gift. And look at verse 10. Jacob says, no, please, If I have found favor, if I have found grace, if I have found forgiveness, then accept my present from my hand. That word for accept will appear again throughout the book of Leviticus. And when it's used, it's it's used when a person recognizes their guilt and brings an offering to the Lord. Their offering and their plea for mercy, if they do that, will be accepted by the Lord. And I think I'm pointing these out because I think Moses wants us to see 
Esau's forgiveness of Jacob and Jacob's gift as analogous to God's forgiving of Israel for their sins and his acceptance of their offerings. Which is why it's not surprising to see what Jacob says in the second half of verse 10. Accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. You see, in chapter 32, when Jacob finished wrestling with God, he said, I have seen the face of God. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. In the same way that God mercifully allowed Jacob to live after Jacob saw his face, Esau allows Jacob to live after Jacob sees his face. This entire scene is framed as a human version of divine forgiveness. In the same way that Esau has surprisingly forgiven Jacob and accepts Jacob's offerings, so God will later surprisingly forgive Israel for their sins and accept their offerings. Then in the second half of the chapter, Esau and Jacob discuss their travel plans. In verse 12, Esau offers to lead Jacob and his group to Seir, where he lives. Then in verse 13, Jacob tells him that it would be too hard on his children and flocks and that Esau should go on ahead of him. I want you to look real quick with me at verse 14. Jacob says, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock and at the pace of the children. No major theological reflection here. I'm pointing out verse 14 in order to encourage parents of young children. Notice, Jacob can only travel as fast as the children that are with him. I wonder if you feel like it takes you forever to go somewhere, right? You're, just, you're trying to go to the store, but it takes 30 minutes to get out of the house, 20 minutes to get the kids buckled into the car, and then you travel to the store, there's meltdowns along the way, you're just, this is taking forever, right? I wanna encourage you with the fact that for thousands of years, parents of young children have been experiencing that. Jacob was experiencing that. Look, Lord, I cannot go as quick as you got. It's you and 400 men with you. Ain't no way we're traveling as fast as you. You see all the livestock, you see all these children, I'm gonna lead on much more slowly at their pace, at the pace of the young children. Then in verses 15 to 17, Esau offers to leave some men with Jacob to help, but again, Jacob kindly refuses. So Esau returns to Seir, and Jacob journeys to Sukkot and builds himself a house and makes booths for his livestock. And then after Sukkot, he journeys to Shechem. Look at verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. While verses 18 and 19 help to set up the drama of chapter 34 to come, we can't miss how these verses also bring to a close the last 20 years of Jacob's life. On the run from Esau, 20 years earlier, Jacob had a powerful encounter with God at Bethel where God promised to protect him and be with him and to give him the land of Canaan. He then experienced God fulfilling a part of that promise during the 20 difficult years he spent with Laban and Haran. As God was with him and blessed him, even as Laban took advantage of Jacob. We even saw how God manifestly 
kept his promise to protect Jacob and be with him by stopping Laban from harming Jacob. But one promise remains. God was with him. God had protected him. God had started to multiply his offspring by the children he had given him. But Jacob still hadn't been given the land of Canaan and one thing stood in his way. Esau stood in his way. If Jacob is going to make it to Canaan, he has to go through Esau. And God brings him through that situation as well. So when we read that Jacob built a house in Sukkot and then came safely to Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, we should read that with a sense of amazement. God has done it. God has done it again. He has kept his promises to Jacob. The promise of offspring, check. The promise of blessing, check. The promise of personal protection, check. And the promise of the land, check. God has done it again. But even more specifically, I think the way this chapter is laid out is instructive for us. I think this chapter and the way that it's laid out is teaching us that it is by a surprising act of forgiveness that Jacob even makes it to the promised land. What happens if Esau doesn't forgive Jacob? What happens if Esau attacks Jacob and kills him and his family? He doesn't come safely to the promised land. Esau's surprising forgiveness is what finally allows for Jacob to take up residence in the land that God had promised him. And I think that lesson, that a surprising act of forgiveness is what finally allows Jacob to take up residence in the promised land. I think that lesson is instructive for us today. The reason it's instructive for us is because we know that the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them countless offspring and to give them the land of Canaan, those promises are fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is the one who came to crush the serpent and to bring the blessing of salvation to all the nations of the earth and to all those people from the nations who believe in Jesus, who walk by faith. Those are the fulfillment of God's promise of countless offspring to Abraham. We who walk by faith are Abraham's offspring. Those who walk by faith are the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not only that, but the physical land of Canaan that God promised to Israel is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. That perfect land flowing with milk and honey that God has promised to all of his offspring who walk by faith in Christ. But for God's people to come to dwell safely in the new heavens and new earth, a surprising act of forgiveness must take place. Not that you and I need to be forgiven by Esau, but that we must be forgiven by God for our countless sins against him. Notice, again, how analogous Esau's forgiveness of Jacob is. Jacob asked for favor, for grace, for forgiveness. 
Esau accepts Jacob's sin offering as God accepts the sin offerings of the Israelites in Leviticus. Jacob says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Moses wants us to see this entire scene as an illustration of the surprising nature of divine forgiveness. But it's not just Moses who wants us to see it this way. I think Jesus wants us to see it this way as well. And why do I say that? Because of how similar this scene is to the most famous parable about the surprising nature of God's forgiveness of sinners. The parable of the prodigal son. Right, it's the parable of the prodigal son. You have a son who demands his inheritance, his blessing. He goes and travels to a foreign land. He squanders his inheritance. He sleeps and eats with pigs who finally comes to his senses. He returns to his father to ask for forgiveness. But while he's approaching his father, he's struck with fear and doesn't think that his father will forgive him. But while he's a long way off, the father sees him, runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him. And what do you have here? A brother who steals his brother's blessing has to flee to a foreign land where he says he slept in the wilderness with sheep, exhausted from the heat by day and freezing by night. He returns to his homeland. He knows that he must face his brother and seek forgiveness from him, but he's struck with fear because he doesn't think his brother will forgive him. But while he's a ways off, his brother sees him, runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him. Friends, Esau's surprising act of forgiveness that leads to Jacob coming to dwell safely in the land is a wonderful picture of God's surprising forgiveness of us that will lead to us coming to dwell safely in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, how often do you consider how surprising it is that God forgave us? How often do you consider the surprising nature of God's forgiveness? You and I hadn't just cheated God twice like Jacob did to Esau. I mean, think about what the New Testament says about us. We were alienated from God, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. We were citizens of the kingdom of darkness. We had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were without hope in the world. We were enemies of God. We lived in a state of constant rebellion towards God, totally given over to the love of self, of sex, of money and power and every other idol this world holds out. And God looked down and said, I am going to save them. That is a surprising act of forgiveness, friends, is it not? I mean, we even heard Kristen read from Psalm 5 earlier, and I can't help but be struck as she read that, but thinking to myself, this, this, is, a, this is a picture of us before God saved us. And I say that because Paul quotes Psalm 5 in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 or 3, to describe the worldwide rebellion of, God, of mankind against God. He says, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. David calls out for God. Make them bear their guilt, O God. And God says, no, I am going to forgive them. 
More than that, I'm not just going to forgive them by a divine fiat. I'm going to send my son into the world to live the perfect life that they should have lived, to keep my law perfectly, which is my standard for entrance into my promised land. And then my son who lives perfectly and righteously is going to die the death that they deserve on the cross, bearing the punishment that they deserve for their sins. Peter says, on the cross, he himself bore our sins in his body, totally imputed to him. The perfectly righteous son of God who never sinned once in his life died for your sins and mine. And he died willingly. He wanted to. He went to the cross for you and for me. Then he was buried in the ground, rose from the dead three days later, displaying his victory over sin and death and Satan and hell and giving assurance and confidence to all who turn to him that God's promise of forgiveness and God's promise that all who turn to him in faith will come into the new heavens and the earth and new earth can be trusted in. Friends, in this chapter, we have a beautiful picture of what God has done for you and me. You might be one of those people today who just thinks, I can't, I can't turn to God in faith. There's no way he's going to accept me. I, I can't turn to God because of the things that I've done. If I was to come into the presence of God, I would, I would stand at a distance in fear. Do you know what I would say to you? Look at what God does to sinners, to those who come to him in faith. He runs to them. He embraces them. He falls on their neck. He kisses them. He draws them into himself and he brings them into his family. That is what God does for sinners. And if you turn to God in faith through Jesus, that is what God will do for you. He will bring you into his family. He will take off the robes of sin he will cleanse us by the blood of Christ and then he will place upon us robes of righteousness. Your sin imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to you so that when God looks at you, he says, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. That is what God says to those of you who turn to Christ in faith. He will, as Zephaniah so beautifully says, rejoice over you with singing. It's just a surprising act of forgiveness, is it not? And if you've trusted in Christ, that is what has happened in your life. That is what God has already done for you. So worth meditating on. How, how could you, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that, that saved a wretch like me, bowing to God seven times, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy, have mercy, and God runs, takes us into his arms, embraces us, kisses us, makes us children of God and says, I've got so many greater things in store for you, you have no idea. But we didn't deserve it. Of course you didn't deserve it, but I'm giving it to you because I'm a God of grace. That's what I do for my children. Oh, to my friends here who, who may not presently follow Jesus, this offer of forgiveness is for you today. This is for you today. There is nothing that will stop God from forgiving you and accepting you if you turn to him in faith through his son Jesus. And there's a couple of things that Jacob does that I want you to think about as you think about what it means to get right with God. In the last chapter, which we looked at last week and you may not have been here last week, Jacob knew that he was going to have to face Esau. And so what did Jacob do? 
He sent him lots of gifts. I'm sending these gifts because I'm trying to appease you. I'm trying to appease him. I don't want him to punish me, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna send him lots of gifts in the hopes that he'll have mercy on me. And I think often people, uh, people often think they can do the same thing with God. Maybe not send him lots, lots of gifts like Jacob and Esau did, but we try and do good deeds to balance out the bad. I did some bad things, and I need to do some good things so I can send, send gifts to, to God. We may, make, we may make mistakes, but we try to be a good person. And we think that when we meet God face to face, we'll be able to point to the, to the, the good. Hey, I, I, I did do wrong, but look at, look at the good things I did. I'm sending them your way. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, right? We try to point to the good. But friends, that doesn't work. That doesn't work with the Lord. It doesn't work any more than if we're being tried in court for a homicide and we point out to the judge that we served in a soup kitchen once. We did a couple good deeds, right? The judge is gonna say, I'm glad you did that. Really good thing to do. But you're still guilty for committing homicide. When we stand before God, no amount of our good deeds can appease God for the sins we've committed against him. We will have to answer for the sins that we've committed, no matter how much good we've done. No matter how much we try to point to those things to to appease God, the the only gift that will appease God is the gift he's provided on your your behalf. The gift of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When you accept that gift, you receive Jesus' perfect record. Jesus takes your sins, and in his death and resurrection, he plays completely for them, so that when God looks at you, he sees only the perfect record of Jesus. And if you turn to him in faith today, God will receive you with joy. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, this scene of Esau running to embrace and forgive Jacob is also a beautiful picture of the way that we should be willing to forgive others who have sinned against us. Right? When God saves a person and begins sanctifying them, making that person more and more like him. That's why in the New Testament, we're called in the New Testament to be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. God calls us to be like him. And forgiving others is one of the ways we become like God, right? That's why Jacob says to Esau in verse 10, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Esau's surprising forgiveness of Jacob and the fact that he didn't hold Jacob's sins against him was to Jacob like seeing God face to face. In much the same way, people can see the face of God in his people. They can see God's power, his glory, and his nature in us when we respond to being sinned against by forgiving, forgiving. And how can we not forgive others considering how God has forgiven us, right? If you think of Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Or Colossians 3.13, bear with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive, right? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Think about how God has forgiven us. He's forgiven us of our small sins, 
and he's forgiven us of our big sins. He didn't just forgive one type of sin and then look at the other sins in our lives and say, that sin is too big. I can't bear to forgive that. He has covered all of our sins. In forgiving us, God, like the father of the prodigal son, has run to us, embraced us, kissed us, brought us into his family forever. We've been forgiven a debt of unthinkable proportions, and the grace and mercy God has shown us should work itself out in a spirit in our lives of being willing to forgive others when they sin against us. In fact, I think if we notice a spirit of unforgiveness in our lives, we should actually be concerned for our spiritual state. In three of the four gospels, an unwillingness to forgive is an indication of not having been forgiven by God. So my question to you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a member of this church, is how are you doing with forgiving others who've sinned against you? How are you doing forgiving others who sin against you? Do you notice a willingness to move towards them, even in a surprising way like Esau does to Jacob? Or do you notice a hardening and an unwillingness to forgive, a desire to hold the sins of others against them? We should regularly strive to develop a spirit of overlooking offenses and moving towards others who've offended us. I mean, you might, you might say, though, John, that's hard. What the other person did to me was really wrong. I get that. But even if what another person has done to you is really bad, we should still strive to forgive them because in the gospel, God has forgiven all of our sins, all of our rebellion, all of our opposition, the small sins and the large alike. If you're struggling today to forgive another person, I wanna encourage you to talk to the Lord about it. Talk to him in prayer. Ask him to help fill you with a spirit of forgiveness. Uh, one of the encouraging promises that we have in the New Testament is that God says that if we pray according to his will, we will have what we ask for. And it is God's will that we forgive others. So if we pray that God help us to forgive, we can be confident that he's gonna start working in us a spirit of forgiveness and that he will answer that prayer in time. I also wanna encourage you if you're struggling to forgive others to, to, talk to, to talk to other friends, close friends in the church, members of your small group, invite them in and ask them to pray with you. You don't have to share all the details of the situation that you're dealing with with them, but inviting others to pray on your behalf is one of the best things that you can do. A, a growing spirit of forgiveness is one of the ways that we even fulfill our church covenant here at CBC. One of the promises and commitments we've made to one another is that we've committed to work and pray for the unity of the spirit. And working for unity will at times require forgiveness. Why? Because though we may have been made new by God, we all still struggle with sin. You, you see this even in Jacob in this chapter. God has clearly chosen him. God has wrestled with him. God had gave him a new name symbolizing his transforming work in Jacob's life. But then this chapter, notice how Jacob arranges his family. Look at, look at verse two. He puts the servants with their children first in the column then Leah and her children, and then Rachel and Joseph. The arrangement of his family conveys a clear bias and favoritism towards Rachel and Joseph. The text has already told us previously that he loved Rachel more than Leah, 
And we'll learn later that he loved Joseph more than his other children. So he puts the others in a more vulnerable position to protect his favorites. Not a good thing to do. Still struggling with the old self. But then he also leads the way. He leads the way out so that if there is an attack, he's the first one that gets hurt. He's a mix of good and bad. He is a mix of old and new. In the same way, you and I have been made new through faith in Jesus Christ, but we will still struggle against the old self, and that will mean that at times we sin against one another. But when that happens, God is giving us a glorious opportunity to show off his work in our lives and to teach others what he is like. And we do that by forgiving others. But when it comes to the topic of forgiveness, I think there's a few caveats or qualifications that we need to make. I think the first thing that we need, first uh, qualification we need to make is that forgiveness doesn't always end in complete reconciliation. I want you to notice in this chapter, Jacob and Esau go their separate ways. Esau returns to Seir. Jacob never goes to Seir where Esau lives. He goes to Sukkot and then to Shechem, right? Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean a relationship will return to normal. Uh, In fact, there are certain sins that may require a complete change in the relationship. You may have to go your separate ways, as it were. But even then, if you've been sinned against and you're in a situation like that, you can work towards forgiving that person in your heart, in your spirit, not harboring uh, an unwillingness to forgive towards them, even if the relationship isn't fully restored. And that leads to the second caveat in qualification. I want, I, I'm saying I want you to work towards forgiveness, towards those who've sinned against you, because forgiveness isn't always, or even often, an on-off switch. I think sometimes Christians fall prey to the idea that, like, I've forgiven them, I, I, I've turned the switch on, and now every feeling of bitterness and hardness that I have in my heart, something's wrong with me, I forgave them. Where's that coming from? Right, but, but forgiveness is more like a, a dimmer switch often than an on-off switch. It's, it's a process by which the light of forgiveness comes on more fully as we work our way through the process of forgiveness. Right? I want you to notice how much of a process it was here. 20 years have passed since Esau and Jacob have seen one another. We don't know exactly when Esau got to the point where he was willing to forgive, forgive Jacob, but we can be certain it took some time right? In the same way, it might take years in our lives to work our ways through very difficult situations, decades even, for us to get to a point where we can say we've forgiven someone who has sinned against us, especially in large and difficult ways. The process of forgiveness, and it is a process, is one in which we will experience waves of emotions, sometimes waves of anger and sadness, Sometimes waves of reconciliation and peace. The most important thing in the midst of that process is fighting to move towards forgiveness. I think there's also a word here in this passage uh, as we draw to a close for those who've sinned against others. I want you to notice what Jacob doesn't do. Jacob doesn't demand he be forgiven. Right? I think at times when Christians are the guilty party in a, in a conflict, we can quickly go to, yeah, well, God commands you to forgive, so you need to be forgiving me right now, right? Like, what's wrong with you, right? Like, don't you obey God? I know I'm the one who sinned against you and against God in the process, but you need to obey God too, 
right? But that's not what Jacob does here. Jacob comes to him, bows himself to the ground seven times. Guilty. Guilt, that's his only word to Esau. I'm guilty. Have mercy on me, right? Uh, if you're the guilty one in a conflict, you shouldn't demand to be forgiven because that's what God commands of that person. You should go to them in a spirit of humility. Own what you did wrong in a spirit of humility, right? Not only does Jacob own what he did wrong by bowing before Esau, conveying his understanding of his own guilt, he also goes out of his way to restore what he had robbed Esau of. He insists that Esau keep the livestock as a way for him to repay him the blessing that he had stolen from Esau. I think you see the same thing happen in the New Testament with Zacchaeus, right? After receiving mercy from God, he says, I'm gonna go back and pay back fourfold the people that I've harmed, right? In the same way, when we're the guilty party in a conflict, we should humbly acknowledge what we've done wrong, verbalizing our understanding of what we did wrong, and how that impacted the other person. And we should strive, when it's warranted, to restore and repay the person for the sins that we've committed against them. And for the kids here, there, there are really lots of wonderful applications for you. I've seen some of you even potentially arguing with others in the chair about what, what I'm saying is right and how other people should respond to you in this, as this sermon has gone on. Kids, there's lots of applications here for you. I want you to think of two categories of repentance and forgiveness. Uh, if you have siblings, raise your hand if you've ever gotten into a fight with them. Raise your hand, keep your hand raised if they were wrong. Everyone's got their hand raised because you're, you're wrong, right? Kids, when you're in a conflict with your sibling, I want you to think about the two categories of repentance and forgiveness. You should repent for what you've done wrong in a situation. So if you've hauled off and hit your brother, you need to own it. Say, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? But don't just stop there. Will you forgive me for hauling off and hitting you in anger? Own what you've done wrong in those conflicts. That, that's what, the, that's what the, the spirit that uh, scripture and God is calling us to as Christians, right? But then I also want you to think about forgiveness, right? When that other sibling or other person in life comes to you and they repent, you should adopt the spirit here of Esau. You should be running towards them, embracing them, forgiving them. I, I, I love you and I'm with you, and I'm for you. you. You can start putting that to practice in your own life, probably today, maybe as soon as you get out of church because you're gonna be hungry and you're all, you're gonna like, everybody's gonna be hangry, they wanna get some food, and they'll start arguing with one another about where to, go to, where to go to lunch and things like that. But kids, I wanna encourage you. Genuine repentance and eager forgiveness is what God calls us to as Christians. And, and we wanna think about the, the promise that Jesus gives us in the New Testament. What does he say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. What is the next promise that God gives to his children? We see played out in this chapter. He promises to, to, to deliver them safely into the land that he has promised them. But friends, that's, that's God's promise to you and me today in the gospel. That after running to us and embracing us and, and forgiving us of our sins in a surprising display of forgiveness, God promises to safely bring us 
to the promised land. Now, now that day is still coming. That day is still coming. But as that day comes, we do what Jacob did. We, we worship the God of Israel as he does at the end of the chapter. And we work out our salvation by displaying God's work in our life. That when we've been sinned against, we forgive. When we've sinned against others, we repent, right? And as we do that, God is gonna work, work out uh, his work in us. He's gonna bring that to completion. And then he promises to bring us finally and fully, peacefully into the land that he has promised us. And that promise is certain to come. And we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come for that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we stand not nearly astonished enough at how surprising you have gone in the gospel to forgive us and how you've run to us and embraced us and kissed us and called us your children. And we pray that 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 would work itself out in our life now and in the days to come, that we would do the same thing towards others who have sinned against us. And we pray that they, others would see your work in our lives as we do that. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.